you very much. Thanks very much. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. You're very kind. Thank you very much indeed. Well, um, when I was uh, a new Christian, I got lots of advice about finding a wife. And, for example, I had a friend called the Reverend Charles C.J. Davis. And he gave me some advice. I'll just give the advice to you in the way it was given to me. He said to me, Adrian, there are two things, two things that you need to remember when looking for a wife. She needs to be firstly a Christian and secondly a woman. But I never got any advice when I became a Christian about work. But most of the time we spend, we're going to spend at work. Between the ages of 18 and 65, we're going to spend the majority of our waking hours either at work or doing stuff that is related to work. In my experience, many Christians are not excited about work. In fact, many of us feel condemned about our work because we feel we should be more spiritual in our view of work. We're not spiritual enough about it. So we hear of other Christians who pray at work. And we sort of hear about that. Well, that was always a problem for me because I can only pray out loud. (laughs) Praying out loud is the only kind of praying that I can do. If I pray in my mind, after two minutes... I'm not praying at all. I'm just thinking about life. My mind wanders. You know, I'm looking out the window. Oh, look, a dog. (laughs) Oh, look, another dog and a bus. Look at him. He looks like a character. I bet he's the type of chap can't walk past a hat without trying it on. My mind wanders. (laughs) Another fear Christians have is that we'll end up conforming to the standards that are around us at work. So you start a job as a radical Christian and then you just sort of become like everybody else. Now where I live in Hammersmith and Fulham, I see this sort of conformity happening on the bus. Because uh, as I often get on the bus, uh, there will be lots of teenagers or uh, kids coming out of school uh, on the bus and they all talk with American accents as if they are gangster rappers. And sometimes I just want to go up to them and say, look, you're not American. You've never been to America. You live in Barnes. Your name is Alistair. And your parents are accountants. You know, you're not a gangster. But why do they all dress and talk the same? Answer, because they want to be accepted. But it just so happens that it's at work where we are surrounded by people who need Jesus. And some of the deepest friendships that we can make, we can make at work. Perhaps the biggest impact that you could ever have will be at work. So I've called this talk um, Work, Prison or Place of Destiny. Ah. Because for some of us here, Spending 45 years of your adult life at work feels like a prison sentence. You fear that your work is the thing that is actually going to prevent you from doing what you really want to do with your life. 
For others here, work really is a place of destiny. And you are excited about your career. There are people in this room right now sitting on these green chairs who are looking forward to going to work tomorrow. And you might say, Adrian, that is blindingly obvious as to why because those Christians, those small majority of people are looking forward to going to work, they have great jobs. And so it's hardly surprising that they're looking forward to going to work. Other Christians don't have great jobs. Other Christians have boring jobs. I can remember one time a few years ago when I was celebrating uh, my wedding anniversary with my wife. We were having a candlelit meal and the evening was going really well and I plucked up the courage to ask Julia a question that I'd never ever asked her before. I asked her, why did you marry me? And she said, well, I could see that you needed help. I said, what do you mean? She said, you weren't normal. She said, you, you needed sorting out, she said. And she wasn't kidding because, folks, for the three years before I married Julia, I only ate tinned meat. I had four tins that I used to rotate. Sainsbury's chili con carne, Sainsbury's chicken korma, Sainsbury's chicken madras, and in my opinion, the prince of Sainsbury's tin meat range, chicken supreme. <laughs> Julia looked at me once and she said, look, I know dogs that have got a more varied diet than you. <laughs> she looked at what I was eating and she said, it's boring. And so some of us feel like that about our work. All I'm doing, Adrian, is I'm just rotating the same four boring items. They're bland, they're the same, I just do them in different orders, it's just the same, the same, the same year after year. And it's understandable why if you have those kind of jobs you might not get very excited about going to work tomorrow morning. Now I would reply, hey, I personally know many Christians who have so-called exciting jobs who are very well paid and they would do anything to get out of them. They would absolutely love to leave their exciting well-paid job tomorrow if only their mortgage would allow them to. They feel their exciting job is a prison and who wants to spend 45 years of your adult life in prison? I know I don't. I have found, here's the dividing line, I've found that the Christians who look forward to going to work are those who have got from the Bible a theological grasp of what God thinks about work. And when you've heard from God about something, it is so much easier to get excited about it, even if it is work. So if you don't get excited about work, you run the risk of life just passing you by. You spend your whole life just waiting for happiness to arrive. It's like maybe when you were 17 and you uh, wanted to pass your driving test, you wanted to be liberated from the humiliation of being dropped off by your mum before a party and then picked up again by your mum after a party. And then that great day came when you finally did pass your driving test and you felt like you were finally free. But then a few weeks later the dawning realisation came that the only car you were insured to drive was mum's car. <laughs> and mum's car was a car of shame. <laughs> it was not fast. It was not cool. Mum's car was designed for driving to Tesco's and back at 25 miles an hour. When we felt deep down, I'm not a Tesco's kind of guy, I'm not a Tesco's kind of guy, we felt like we were destined for something greater than Tesco's and so we wanted to have our own car and we saved and we saved and we saved and then eventually we got enough money to buy our own car 
And it was technically a car. <laughs> but then we realized there were other people who had real cars. And so we wanted a real car. And so on it goes. Fill in the blanks with whatever is the equivalent in your story. Britain is full of people. Britain is full of people who are thinking, oh, if, if only we could get out of rented. If only we could get our first foot on the first rung of the property ladder. And then you get your own place, but it's not quite big enough. And so you look into your wife's eyes and you say, darling, if only we could convert the loft. And then you do convert the loft. And it's great for a while. And then you think, well, you know, actually, we'd quite like to have um, some children. Uh, and so then eventually you get some children. And then you store, you want to have some children that you can store in your converted loft. <laughs> But then you find they don't stay in there. They kind of come out and they run all over the house, everywhere. And then they sort of hold on to, you know, one of your legs. You walk around the house with a child attached to each leg like this. And eventually you start to look forward to the day when these children would eventually leave your house. <laughs> because then, you see, when your children eventually left your house, then you can achieve your real goal. And all the way along, your real goal has been this. In your mid-50s or mid-60s, let's say you're 55 years old, your goal all along has been, we want to go on a cruise <laughs> to New Zealand. And so for those three glorious weeks, you save and you save and you save over months and years, and you save up enough money, you go on the cruise, and as you lounge on the deck, you feel, yes, finally I have arrived. This is the life I was destined for. And you feel like, this is it. And then on the last day of your cruise, you think, oh no. You feel depressed because you know you've got to go back to work tomorrow. Then you think, no matter, only another 10 years of work, then I'll be able to retire. But in those 10 years, all of your children have their own children and they produce a total of 14 grandchildren. And on your first day back from your cruise, the phone rings. It's your daughter. Oh, me and my husband, we'd really like to get our foot on the first rung of the property ladder. Could you please look after our four children? You can't say no. You say yes. And you put the phone, the phone rings again. It's your other child. Oh, could you look after my four children? Uh, yes, you can't say no. Put it down. And by the end of the day, you've committed to looking after all 14 of your grandchildren. And so you spend the next 20 years looking after these 14 grandchildren. And eventually, you get them off your hands but now, you're 85 years old. <laughs> and you're absolutely exhausted. And you look in the mirror and you think, was that it? <laughs> Folks, if work is only a way of paying the bills, if we're just enduring work, if we're just surviving work, well, work's no fun. And life can be like that. But if we can find God in our work, work actually really can be a place of destiny. And in the few verses that we'll look at today, I can say, actually, in these few verses, you will find what God's will is for you in your work. And so will I. And so we're going to study Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 22. So a little bit of background... Uh, at this church in this place called Colossae, um, Paul was tackling a problem that we still face today in the church. There were some heretics kind of sniping around the fringes of the Colossian church and they had imported some Greek thinking into what is essentially a Hebrew religion. The Greeks believed in a sacred, secular divide. 
And that is a divide that's totally absent from Hebrew thinking. In fact, the word secular does not even appear anywhere in the whole Bible. In Hebrew thinking, everything in life, folks, is spiritual. In Greek thinking, it's not. The Greeks said matter is evil. They said the body is evil. They said that the world itself is evil and secular and nasty. Whereas, they said the spirit realm, ah, the spirit realm's wonderful. And so, they basically, the the Gnostics, the so-called Gnostics, wanted to escape from this nasty world into the spirit realm. And the way you could do that was through this thing called Gnosis, with the silent G. So through these sort of passwords, this secret information, you escape the nasty secular world into the spirit realm, and hence the heresy is called Gnosticism. And uh, at Colossae, this Greek thinking had begun to infiltrate the church. Folks, this has been a problem for the Christian church ever since. Even, dare I say, it could be in this church that this Gnostic thinking has had an influence. How do I know that? Because you might overhear a conversation even in this church, that goes something like this. Maybe out there in the foyer over coffee, you might overhear a conversation like this. Oh, you know Andy? Yeah, everyone knows Andy. Andy's going full-time. No, he's going full-time. Oh, I'm so jealous. Yeah, me too. Andy's going to leave secular work. Andy's going to go into full-time Christian ministry. Now, I've got a real problem with that phrase. I'm now going to attack it for a couple of minutes. What is meant by it is that Andy, oh, Andy used to work in a bank or, I don't know, in some business or accountancy firm. He worked in some nasty, godless, pointless, secular job, shifting money around to make rich people richer. But now, whoop-de-doo, Andy's escaped. Oh, Andy's escaped from the nasty secular workplace. Andy's going full-time. Andy won't be, Andy won't be serving God part-time anymore. Oh, no. And is no longer serving God just on Sundays and on a Tuesday night at small group. No, Andy's been really radical. Andy's given up his job where he was surrounded by non-Christians who desperately need Jesus. <laughs> and now Andy's in full-time ministry. Andy's not a part-time Christian anymore. Oh no, it's all very heroic. From now on, Andy will be surrounded all day, every day by Christians. And he'll no longer have his job at the nasty bank, which was of no spiritual benefit to anybody at all. No, Andy's not serving mammon anymore, and is now going to serve God in full-time Christian ministry. Now that is how some Christians think. And as we're going to see, that is a totally wrong way of thinking. Because it's rooted in an unbiblical view of work, which, expressed visually, looks something like this. Have a look at the screen. So at the top, (laughs) it's true. At the top, you've obviously got pastor, which is the ultimate spiritual dimension. Next, you have overseas missionary, almost as heroic, but not quite. Then you have elder, full-time Christian worker, tent maker, but that only counts if you do it abroad. No points for doing that in the UK. All those are all considered sacred. They are called Christian ministry, working for God. Below the line of despair, you have Christians who who don't work for God. Christians in secular work, worse still, rich Christians in secular work. (laughs) And then, of course, at the bottom, parking attendants, and we all know who they work for. (laughs) 
So folks, what we have here is precisely the sort of sacred, secular divide that Paul was attacking when he was attacking the heretics. This is rank Gnosticism. Work above the line of despair is sacred, work below is secular. But Paul is not a Gnostic, so in Colossians chapter 3, he gives the following advice to slaves. And in so doing, it just so happens that whilst he's talking to slaves, it just so happens he gives the most important principle in the whole of the New Testament about how you and I should view work. He says this, Colossians 3.22, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Now, of course, this is very challenging, especially when you consider that it is addressed to slaves. Incidentally, Paul isn't saying, oh, actually, slavery is okay. No. He's saying, if you happen to be a Christian slave, the right thing to do if you happen to be a Christian slave is to obey your earthly masters. And this is massive for us because for all I know, your job might well be a nightmare. But I doubt it is as tough as being a slave in the Roman Empire in 61 AD. You might say about your boss, oh, she's a real slave driver. But of course... She's not a real slave driver. But these Colossian Christmas, they were real slaves and they were owned by non-Christian slave drivers. However bad your job may be, you can choose to quit your job. A slave could never do that. Slaves are told to obey their masters. First question here for those slaves and for us is how should we work? The answer is in verse 22 where we see these two principles. Firstly, Write actions in all things, obey in everything, verse 22a. And then secondly, write motives at all times, out of reverence for the Lord, even when the boss isn't looking, verse 22b. Firstly, obey in everything. Oh man, this is hard. It requires a great deal of patience. Just say something about patience. I was on the tube in London the other day, and uh, the, the train stopped at Earl's Court, the driver changes over, and so we sat there for quite a few minutes, the doors are open, and I'm sitting in the tube train minding my own business, this lady walks past, and she stops, and she's staring right at me, like this. This does not happen very often. She's staring at me like this, and then she says this, Lars! Lars! I can't believe it's you, how are you? It's me, Jennifer, how are you? And I, I'm look, I look around the tube train, and everybody else is looking at me. They're all looking at me. She's so loud, this complete silence. And so I, I look back at her and I say, I'm going to be completely honest and say that right now I don't immediately recognize you, but I am sure that as we carry on talking, I'm sure that immediately I will remember who you are. And she said, what? You, you don't remember me? I, I said, well, no, but if we carry on chatting, I'm sure that any minute now your name will pop, you know, I'll, I'll remember immediately. She said, I can't believe you don't remember who I am. I'm offended. I'm offended. Well, just tell me. I won't tell you my name. I'm offended. I'm upset. I'm upset. And and so, she's standing there. She's all upset. And everybody's looking at me. And I'm standing up in the tube train by this stage, talking to her. Everybody's listening in. And I say, look, it might be that the reason why I don't recognize you 
It's because my name is not Lars. <laughs> she looked at me again and she said, Oh, I'm so embarrassed, she says. And then her friend puts her arm around her and they walk off down the tube platform. And at that point, everybody in the tube bursts out laughing. And I sit down in my seat and this bloke next to me turns to me and said, you must be the most patient man in London. Now, of course, if he'd worked with me, he'd know that I'm not even the most patient man in my office. This is a real challenge. But actually, you know what? You know, we're rubbish at getting angry at work anyway. We're not very good at getting angry. Uh, For example, I have a a friend who told me about a pastor mate of his who went to a football match recently. And uh, when he got his ticket, he realised, oh no, he was like right in the war zone. The pastor's there with all the fans from his hometown team. And right next to where the stewards kind of, all the guys in yellow bibs, like the two tribes, the home fans and the away fans, are right next to each other. And so all through the game, they're chanting abuse at each other, standing, of course, he can't join in because he's a Christian. He can't swear, he can't join in all the chanting. So he just sits, you know, under his his hands and he's just sort of, and, and all through the game, he's getting more and more wound up by these opposition fans who are like taunting his town and his team. And he can't give any abuse back because he's a Christian. He's just sitting there, he's a pastor. And then eventually, in the last minute, his team are losing and he, he just loses it. By this time, all, the, all the, his, his town team are just sitting down. So he stands up in front of 2,000 opposing fans. And on his own, he says, On the way home, he says, I hope you all get stuck in traffic. <laughs> and all the away fans are like, What? What sort of abuse is that? I hope you all get stuck in traffic. But because he was a Christian, he couldn't wish anything really bad would happen to them. So he just wished that something mildly annoying would happen. We're rubbish at getting angry. But we are told to obey at work. So the first part of the verse is hard enough. The second part of verse 22 is harder still. Here, we're told to behave at work the same when the boss isn't looking as when he or she is looking. The Bible tells us to behave at work as if the boss was looking, after, looking over our shoulder all the time. So, verse 22 is so hard, you might think, you know, why should I even bother? Well, the answer to that is in verse 23. There are two reasons for obeying in all things at all times. They are firstly the boss and secondly the incentive scheme. So the boss, verse 23, as working for the Lord and not for men and be the incentive scheme, that's verse 24, you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Remember, it is the Lord Christ who you are serving. Firstly then, the boss. Here is the astonishing truth. You haven't actually been working for men after all. You're working for Jesus. Think of Jesus as your boss at work all week in the boss's chair. So let us say you're Andy. You remember Andy earlier on, the guy who was, we were talking about in the foyer who's going full-time, who's going to leave his job at the bank. And let's imagine that Andy is still working at the bank in his secular job. And you're Andy and you've not yet gone full-time, and so you arrive for another normal day at work at the bank, and there, sitting in the boss's chair, is Jesus. And he can hardly believe it. And he falls to his knees. And he says, Jesus, my Lord and my God, is it really you? Jesus, what are you doing here in a bank of all places? Jesus replies, Andy, I work here. And he says, 
Jesus, what do you mean you work here? This is a secular job. Jesus says, Andy, that is rubbish theology and you're late again. (laughs) And he says, but Jesus, you should be pleased that I'm late because the reason I'm late, Jesus, is because last night at small group, after the group ended, I prayed for four people. It took so long. That's why I missed the bus, I missed the train and that's why... Hang on a minute, Jesus. How do you know that I've been late before? Jesus replies, because Andy, I've been sitting in this chair every single day since you started working here, Andy. Andy, I have been your boss for the past three and a half years. And he says, woe unto me. Jesus, I'm so sorry. Jesus, forgive me and tell me, how can I serve to advance the kingdom of God today? And Jesus says, well, you can start by making our clients some money. I want to report, Andy, on all the deals you've been working on by one o'clock on my desk. And he says, but Jesus... And he says, Jesus, you don't really care about banking, do you? And, you know, Jesus, this is just a secular job. We're just making rich people richer. And he says, surely, Jesus, you only really care about the church, your bride, and about charities. Then maybe you possibly care about teachers and doctors and nurses, but that's it. And he says, Jesus says, Andy, what does the Bible say about work? And he says, well, Lord, uh, work is a curse. It's part of the fall, Lord. I'm surprised you don't know. Um, Jesus, um, everything was wonderful in the Garden of Eden, then Adam and, Adam and Eve sinned, man fell, and then, then Jesus' work was introduced as a burden. Jesus says, no, no, Andy, work came before the fall. My father created you to work, Andy. That is Genesis 2. Andy, work is a pre-fall ordinance. Man worked in paradise in Genesis 2, and he'll work again in paradise in the new heaven. It says so, Andy, in Isaiah 65. And he says, Jesus, look, I'm really sorry to contradict you, Jesus, but what are you talking about? What do you mean work was introduced before the fall and not after? I mean, work in heaven, Jesus? What are you talking about? Give me a break. Work, Jesus, and he says, is for Christians, work is a necessary evil. We all know it's something that you know, Christians just have to put up with. Work kind of just frustrates church life and its only redeeming feature is that it helps with tithing. Jesus says, Andy, you've never really got a biblical theology of work have you? Andy replies, hmm, I suppose not. And then finally Jesus asks, Andy, do you think it might possibly be that that is why you are so keen to escape secular work and go into full-time Christian ministry? Could it be, Andy, that's possibly why you think that your current job is so pointless? Andy, you need to go back to Genesis. So let's see if we can help Andy very briefly by looking at the theology of work. Just a couple of minutes. According to Genesis 2, God's purpose in creating you and me is that we should work. Work was given to our first parents as a blessing. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That is God's will for my work, for my life, and for your life. That we should subdue the earth, to work the earth, to have dominion over it, to rule over it, to rule over creation. That's why we're here. Question, why did God create human beings? Answer, to work the planet. And so we read in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work it and take care 
of it. So work is spiritual in its origin. God's plan for Adam and Eve was that they should experience spiritual fulfilment through work. God, do you notice, God doesn't give Adam a sun lounger and a pina colada and a hammock and some shades. God doesn't put Adam on earth just to sort of chill out. No, God puts him in the Garden of Eden to work. Work is spiritual in origin. And that is why, if at the current moment you are looking for a job, and at the moment nobody's said yes, and incidentally, if that is you, I totally respect you. You're doing everything that you could possibly do. You're doing everything you should do to get a job. But nobody's saying yes to you. If you, that's your situation, it's a spiritual malaise you're experiencing. Because you want to work. You feel like, hey, I should be using my gifts and abilities. I should be doing, with all the stuff God's given me, I should be making a contribution through paid work. But it's not happening for you at the moment. I respect that. And I respect you. Because God's made us to work the earth and to take care of it. Equally, the opposite extreme is that you and I as Christians, we simply see work as an opportunity for evangelism. But hey, there was nobody to evangelise in Genesis chapter 2. It's true. Actually, work probably is the best place to form friendships with people on, on a completely level playing field. You might say, Adrian, that's all well and good, but you know, I, you know, I can't really do that um, because unlike people like you maybe, I, I don't really have a testimony, you may say. You may say, look, you know, the fact is I was eight years old you may say, when I gave my life to Christ, I, you know, I was raised in a Christian home. So when it comes to my, you know, like people have a before and after conversion story, so when it comes to my before story, I can't say anything dramatic. Like some Christians say something dramatic, like their testimony is something like this. Dude, I was raised in a ghetto. I had a $1,000 a day crack cocaine habit. My life was a blur of gang violence. And I was being chased by the feds. But then one night, in prison, gee! You can't say that because that's not true. <laughs> the reason you can't say that is because before you were a Christian, you were seven years old, and you went to a Church of England primary school in Guildford. <laughs> now, my wife Julia is the most effective personal evangelist I know. In fact, Julia has led more of her friends to Christ than anyone else I know. Yet, Julia grew up in a loving, wonderful Christian family. And she never backslid. She, of all people, could say, I don't really have a testimony. So what does Julia do? Does she make up a testimony? Does she invent one? Does she say, yeah, I was abandoned by my parents at birth. And I was raised by a pack of wolves. And it was when I was running with the wolves that I learned to hunt and kill with my bare hands. And it was then that I first discovered voodoo. No, she doesn't say that. Julia didn't grow up in the Bronx. She never saw action in Vietnam. Before she came to Christ, she went to Croydon High School for Girls. And about the most radical thing that my wife Julia, or the most rebellious thing that my wife Julia ever did at school was once when she handed in her Latin homework late. <laughs> so what is her faith story? Well, this is what Julia says. She says this, As a child, I worried a lot. Even though I had nothing to worry about. Like many people, she says, I was a born worrier. My parents brought me up to believe the Bible and I became a Christian at age 12. At age 13, I was baptised. But when I was 17, I got glandular fever and I missed a lot of school. I could have got really worried, but I felt God's presence and I learned not to worry about things. I felt this amazing sense of peace. I went to university and I could easily have turned my back on Jesus, but I found I didn't want to. God has done something real in my life. I was a born warrior, but God gave me peace. And she hangs her story on those two things that so many people can relate to. 
Born warrior, lots of born warriors in Britain looking for peace. And so that's how she starts. So we can do that stuff. We can think about our faith story. We can think about sharing our story. We can prepare ourselves to make the most of every opportunity. But here is my point. We also glorify God through doing our job in and of itself. For its own sake, or in this case, for God's sake. In the Old Testament, that is what Joseph was doing in Egypt. That is what Daniel did in the Old Testament in exile. Daniel never got a divine call. Daniel never heard, Lo, I am calling you, Daniel, to become a civil servant. You you, you tend not to hear those words. Even Daniel didn't hear those words. Yet that's what God had called him to do. So he was just faithful to God where God had put him. Daniel was never told which career to pursue, but he was just faithful with the job he happened to be doing and God opened doors for him. So Joseph and Daniel glorified God just by working and doing it as best they could. They were outstanding civil servants and administrators. Now, if you look through in your Bible, Hebrews 11, the 17 heroes of faith in our Hall of Fame, 15 of those 17 people were doing what you and I would just call normal jobs. And now do you see how ridiculous it is that we call that secular work when the heroes of our faith were doing the secular work? In the Hebrew word for work and the Hebrew word for worship turn out to be the same word, avodah. And this word is best translated service. When we work, we are serving God just as much as when we come into this place and sing worship songs on a Sunday. God wants you to be able to look at your computer screen and say... My workstation is my worship station. It's the same word, avodah. God created us to work. And this should come as no surprise to us because we are created in the image of God and guess what? God is a worker. In the beginning, God the Father worked in a team with the Son and with the Holy Spirit for six rewarding, satisfying, fulfilling days of labour. And then on the seventh day, Genesis 2-3, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And God looked at his work and at that point he feels a surge of satisfaction. God looked at what he worked, what he'd done and he felt it was very good. Now that is important for you, for the many of you here who right now your work is not paid. Your work right now, the work you're doing at the moment does not attract a monthly or even a weekly pay slip. You are working just as much if you are looking after children at home or you're a student or whatever the many different things you may be doing, you're working just as much as those who are being paid. And incidentally, you need to hear that from the pulpit even though you know that. And so John Stott defines work as this. Work, I love this definition. Work is the expenditure of energy, mental, manual, or a combination of the two, which brings fulfilment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. Do you see... No mention of pay. No mention of money. Yeah? If you are a student, if you are studying for your GCSEs, or you're doing some sort of further education, you are working. If you are caring for an elderly relative, and you've been doing that for years, you are working. The fact you're not getting paid is neither here nor there. You are working. Anyway, next thing that happens in Genesis chapter 3 is that man falls, man sins, and work at that point, like everything else, is distorted by the fall. And then what happens is Jesus comes to reverse the process. So, work was cursed in Genesis 3.17. 
But Jesus took the curse in his body on the cross. Jesus broke broke the power of sin and Satan on the cross. He defeated death by his death and resurrection. Then he ascended up into heaven. And now the Holy Spirit is given to extend the kingdom of God everywhere through you. And as we Christians go to work, hear this, we are reversing the effects of the fall until eventually the kingdom of God comes in all its fullness. And we all know that it will. In the end, we see it in Revelation 21. We also see it in Isaiah 65 where we read these words, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. They will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. One day the effects of the curse on work will be lifted and in the new heavens and the new earth we will work again but this time as God intended we'll build houses and we'll live in them we'll plant vineyards, we'll eat their fruit we'll work in paradise once more but our work won't be in any way burdensome there'll be no pain and there'll be no tears so what we are doing as Christians at work in the meantime, for example, tomorrow, is you're doing this every single day. Every day, you as a Christian, as you go to work, you are extending the parameters of the kingdom of God, reversing the curse. And you may find it helpful to think of this apparently nebulous phrase, the kingdom of God, as the sphere of God's goodness. You tomorrow morning, as you get in your car, you are extending the sphere of God's goodness. You're extending the sphere of the kingdom of God, reversing the effects of the fall. For example, Jesus told the parable of the talents, didn't he? A ruler gives a talent of money to each of his servants. Two use their talents to earn more, but a third does not. The lazy servant does not put his talent to work, and of course the ruler is angry with him. But the servants who put their talents to work are praised and rewarded with what? More responsibility. That's what happened to you maybe when you got promoted. That was the spiritual principle. Paying off. That's what we are called to do. To put our money, to put our talents, whatever God has given us, we put it to work. In the same way, when you are asked to stay late at work, as you perhaps often are, you are not, when you say yes, you're not just throwing your life away, wasting your time, stopping the advance of the kingdom of God by wasting your time at work when you could be doing something spiritual. No. We are extending the sphere of God's goodness through our work. And here is why Colossians 3.23 is encouraging. It gives us a new dignity. The fact that we are doing it for Jesus gives us a new dignity. When your boss asks you to do something, can I ask you, can you see Jesus standing over their shoulder saying, Jesus is behind your boss saying, hey, do it for me. Hey, do it for me. I know you don't want to do it, but do it for me. Can you see that? And verse 24 gives us not only a new dignity, but a new motivation. So in verse 23, we looked at the boss. Here in verse 24, we are looking now at the incentive scheme. And the incentive scheme in Colossians 3 are rewards in heaven. That's the incentive. Now, of course, we don't earn our way into heaven. But we can earn rewards here for when we get to heaven. And one day, every single minute of every single day that you've spent extending the sphere of God's goodness on earth will be rewarded. 
Every day that you spent being salt and light at work, you'll find will be worth it. Everything you did for the Lord Christ at work, whether it was graphic design or picking up litter for the council, doesn't matter what it was, it'll be rewarded. There is a cast iron guarantee. If what you did at work was really for Jesus, you'll get a reward for it. And do you remember we saw that table at the start? I put up that kind of league table with the line of despair and we laughed at that. Virtually at the top of that list was overseas missionary. One of the most spiritual things you can possibly do. Now why is that considered so heroic? Because if you do go to the Kalahari bush people, or if you do go to a village in Libya, or a village in Turkey, chances are you'll be the only Christian there, and that is why it's considered to be heroic. But folks, that is exactly the situation that many of you are facing tomorrow morning. You will be the only Christian there in an unreached people group of office workers or trainee nurses or business people. You'll be reaching an unreached people group. You'll be the only one there. Folks, Jesus loves them just as much as he loves the Kalahari Bush people. Yeah? Jesus died for computer programmers in exactly the same way as he died for Bedouin tribesmen. Now, come on. Where has God placed you? I don't know, but you know. I was a sports reporter. Now, there is such a thing as a a call to church-paid work. But you know what? Church-paid work that I'm doing now is no more or less spiritual than working for the BBC. And you might say, yeah, Adrian, the fact is, look, you don't really know me. I'm just doing admin. Right, my job, to be honest, is I answer the phone. And so all that really happens is that you know, most of the day people just swear at me down the phone. Where's the kingdom of God in that, you might say? Well, Jesus gave us the answer to that. Jesus said the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is not over there or over here. He said the kingdom of God is within you. Yeah? So you won't find it over there. Oh, yeah, but Adrian, if only I could work for a Christian charity. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is within you. Colossians 1.27 God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles of Hastings the glorious riches of this mystery which is, what's the mystery? Christ in you. The hope of glory. You are the kingdom of God. It's not a mystery after all. You're it. When your alarm goes off tomorrow morning, when you hit the shower tomorrow morning, Christ in you is up. And the kingdom of darkness is not happy. The devil would be delighted if there were no Christians in the media, if there were no Christians in film, if there were no Christians in local government, if there were no Christians in healthcare, if there were no Christians in business. The devil would love that. The devil loves Gnosticism. The devil would love to keep the sacred-secular divide. Let's keep all the Christians in a nice Christian ghetto. Why does the devil want to keep all Christians in a nice Christian ghetto? Because it just so happens that the devil knows that in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed this. He prayed for you and he prayed not that God would take you out of this world, but Jesus prayed that he keep you in the world. Wherever you go, God goes. Wherever you work, God is working. When you enter your workplace tomorrow, Christ in you arrives. When you go to work, Jesus is going to work through you. And I want to say this. This meeting in this building is not King's Church Hastings at its best. King's Church Hastings at its best is at 9am tomorrow morning when King's Church Hastings arrives at work. Do you believe it? 
maybe the band could come and join me. And just as they do, I just want to honour you. Because you guys are at the coalface of extending the parameters of the kingdom of God. You might not feel like you're in the spotlight, you might not even feel you get a lot of the credit, but you will in heaven, because you're storing up rewards all the time. And you might say, Adrian, look, it is really hard for me to have any sense of vision and destiny and purpose and excitement about my work, because my working life and my life circumstances are really hard. What I'd say to you is this, Jesus has promised one thing, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. What does that mean? Never includes the office argument, the mundane assembly line, a dying patient, an annoying class at school, a troublesome colleague. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, the kingdom of God is in you. And Jesus has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Let's stand together, shall we? I want to just declare something over you as I close. In the name of Jesus, I declare to King's Church Hastings that work is not a prison, but that work is a place of destiny. And I prophesy that this town will feel the advance of the kingdom of God. I prophesy this town will see that Christ in King's Church Hastings is on the move. I prophesy that unreached people groups of trainee nurses and accountants and business people and council employees, I prophesy these unreached people groups will be reached, will be penetrated and that salt and light will be sown there and that the kingdom of God will advance and the kingdom of God's parameters will be extended through this church. And everybody said, Amen. 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 God bless you.